Thought Leadership from PwC. It's really important to have everyone on the same page. And I think once you kind of have that cross-functional team that's working on this, but also the importance of sharing this information with other parties that you really are should be sharing it with. So in doing that in real time, and I think the other piece is the auditor, right? And so so they understand the impacts, right? This is the very core of the securities laws when you think about the safeguarding of assets concept in the federal securities laws. Taking a look and doing that gap assessment today, are you prepared come December to be able to disclose on those three buckets of disclosure? And then secondly, have you tested that? Hello, today we're back with a look at the SEC's new cybersecurity disclosure rule. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. The SEC released its final rule on cybersecurity risk management, strategy, governance, and incident disclosure on July 26th of this year. The new rules significantly expand registrants' annual disclosures, providing investors and other stakeholders with more standardized information. While the disclosures of material cybersecurity incidents will require more specific details and may occur sooner than registrants have historically reported such events, requiring changes to systems, processes, and controls. With so much change for companies to process, We wanted to spend some time on the podcast looking not only at the rule, but also at the heart of what companies can do to prepare so that they are truly disclosure ready. To that end, we've asked Kyle Moffat, PwC National Office Partner, and Matt Gorham, PwC Cyber and Privacy Innovation Institute Leader, to join us to walk through the rule and the steps companies are taking now to prepare. From my conversation, I quickly realized that the two of them have been spending a lot of time together working with companies and sharing their perspectives. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did to understand the best way to get ahead of these new requirements. With that, here's our conversation. Matt, Kyle, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you both on today to talk about a topic that is really top of mind for, I think, most of our listeners right now, and that would be related to cyber and the new SEC rules and how that fits into the SEC agenda. I think we're going to hit a lot of different topics. But before we get into it, Kyle, you're obviously well known to our audience, but you can give your background give just background. in case. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, a partner in our uh, national office, uh, the, leading the professional practice group, um, and spend I'd say a lot a lot of time focused on uh, new standards um, and obviously the SEC reporting uh, requirements. Um, spent uh, almost twenty years at the SEC in the division of corporation finance, so very familiar with kind of the the rulemaking process. But as you know, as well as looking into cybersecurity disclosures, is something that is not new, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But you know, there's a history of of, you know, interpretive guidance at the staff level. And so something I'm very familiar with, spent a lot of time on, and of course, spent a lot of time talking about this topic 
uh, not not just you know with with our clients. Matt, Matt, and I have been doing this. We've been out on the circuit talking to a number of our clients. Matt does it more more often than I do, um, but uh, he's obviously the more relevant and important person. So we'll let him introduce himself. You always downgrade yourself, Kyle. It's very important to have you here too. But Matt, can you also share your background with us? Sure. I, I lead uh, the Cyber and Privacy Innovation Institute in the Cyber Risk and Regulatory Practice at PwC, and a lot of the work I do is around uh, talking to boards and C-suites about the cyber threat landscape, how to interact with the federal government. Basically, uh, as a result of prior to about two and a half years ago, I'd spent the previous 25 years at the FBI. My last job there was as the assistant director of cyber. So an FBI speak person responsible for all investigations and operations in cyber at the FBI. All right. Well, that's why I said what I said. (laughs) I was going to say definitely sounds like I have the right people here for the podcast. But Kyle, maybe I'll start things off with you and then Matt can give some color commentary of just why this topic and how it fits into the SEC's broader agenda. So so why the topic is a great question. I think this has been an area of focus for the SEC, obviously, for, for a number of years. Um, you know, we, we certainly have, you know, staff guidance from 2011, a corporate disclosure guidance topic. It's an area the staff has issued comments on um, over the years. It's an area the SEC has monitored. And then you follow up 2018, there was, you know, guidance from the commission, essentially codified the, the previous guidance from the staff and highlighted essentially, hey, here, you need to be thinking about cybersecurity risks, or here are things to think about when you're thinking about, you know, disclosures of incidents. And then beyond that, there's insider trading impacts, right? So the SEC has looked at it from the perspective of, hey, if you have access to material non-public information, um, should you be careful about insider trading during that period of time before you've actually disclosed an incident. Um, I can tell you that back in 2018, uh, the Democrats that, that on the commission were, were really looking for a more in the way of, you know, disclosure requirements, more prescriptive disclosure requirements. Um, I think, you know, that's been a conversation that's been going on for, for a number of years. And so really was no surprise that the SEC put it on their agenda and, and, and have gotten to the point where they've proposed and finally adopted a, a final rule. Um, I also think, too, it's it's this focus of, on investor protection. So that that's the other element is focus on protecting the investor. That is the Gary Gensler you know, theme. That's the space that I think a lot of people will look at and evaluate what you know, the topics on the commission's agenda. And, and there's a lot within the cybersecurity context and, and these new disclosures that will put the burden on not just management, but also board and board's oversight, their role in oversight. Um, and so that's why it fits into the agenda, because the, there is an ESG agenda we've talked about in the past. Um, Gensler is very focused on it. Cops on the beat, right? So really wanting rigor around the, the reporting requirements, you know, focused on all of these topics, environment, uh, you know, technology, you know, he's got a heavy interest in technology. He's focused on, you know, all of these rural crypto is obviously a huge area of interest for him. So I, I think this just is one of the additional items that he has been tasked with tackling and he's done it. He's, he's delivered. The other thing to add to that is there was a recent statement yesterday during one of his uh, testimony, he had testimony on the Hill so September 12th, um, for those that are going to be listening to this at a later date, the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, um, in that he talked about cyber. He talked about that being an area of focus, the importance of it. Um, I'd say he fielded some questions, other questions on a, numerous topics. Obviously, ESG, climate is is the big focus. Um, but again, it is an area that 
that the Hill has been focused on as well. Well, and I was thinking while you were speaking, Kyle, for those who actually wanted to just hear some more perspectives on this broader agenda, you did an interview for our webcast with Wes Bricker and Raquel Fox from um, Skating Arps talking about some of this in context. And so there are still a few more viewings. So we'll, we'll include some links in the show notes to that. So I think um, the helpful perspective, but specific for today's podcast, we're really going to hone in on these cyber rules. And so can you just give a quick summary of what the rule entails? And then we'll get into some of the implementation considerations. Sure. It's one where, look, I don't think all of this is new. I think the SEC would tell you that cyber incident reporting, if, if you had a material cyber incident, you should uh, consider disclosure of that in a Form AK. Um, this amendment or, or these new rules will require timely disclosure of material cybersecurity incidents. And so that disclosure would be required to be made um, after four days of basically the AK would require this reporting four days after you've determined that that cybersecurity incident is material. So that that's the distinction there is it's not after the, the cyber incidents occurred. It's when you've determined that it's in fact material that is effective December 18th. So that's something that all companies need to be thinking about it, except for smaller reporting companies, but all companies need to be thinking about it and make sure that they have processes in place to ensure that they're actually reporting. And it's going to be very prescriptive disclosures um, that they're going to have to provide. So a lot of the, you know, what happened, when did it happen? What were the impacts? So, so that's something that companies need to be paying attention to. The other piece is the annual disclosure requirements that you'll see in a Form 10-K. That will be effective for companies essentially 1231 year ends and after would have to comply, would have to provide these disclosures in a 10-K and they'd put it all in one place within the 10-K. So today you see those disclosures throughout a filing. You may see it in the proxy statement. You say material risks let's say in risk factors in the four part of the 10K, this would put all of it in one place. And so you'd see disclosures of risk management. So how how management is actually managing the risk, the cyber risk, um, their strategy, and then of course governance. And that's the kind of the, the, the second bucket of this reporting. And I think that's kind of consistent with this ESG mandate that we've seen uh, from the chair. Well, and I also think governance is, as you said, is consistent with this broader mandate, but it's also something if I'm someone thinking about implementing this, that's something you can deal with right now to so make sure you have the right governance in place. I also have some follow-up questions on materiality and readiness, but uh, let's get to those in a moment. Just another follow-up question on reporting. What exactly goes into the 8K? So you're required to describe the nature, scope, and timing of the incident and the material impact or reasonably likely material impact on the registrant. So that's one area where I think we've gotten a lot of questions is when you get to the material impacts or even reasonably likely material impacts, how should you think about that in the context of reporting? And the SEC has, has weighed in and said, well, you're going to look to the federal securities laws because there is case law. There are There is a definition from case law that outlines essentially what companies should be thinking about uh, as it relates to a material incident or ma any material uh, matter that occurs. Um, and obviously I mentioned already that you would have to report it within four business days of, of actually that material determination, concluding that it was material. It has to be done without unreasonable delay. That's the other 
element to think about. And it's not something that just stops. You don't just assess it, you know, 20 days later and then ignore it. It's a continual assessment because the impacts may not be known until, and, and Matt can talk about this, may not be known until, you know, 30 days or, or what have you. You just, you just don't know how long it's going to take to determine those impacts because they're not all going to be created equal. They're not all going to have this direct financial statement impact. There, there, there are a lot of indirect impacts, reputational harm, you know, is it, is it hindering the operations of the company? You know, is it a ransomware attack where it's just essentially shutting everything down and, and no one can actually, you know, buy products, no one can actually, let's say, pull money out of an ATM, um, you know, purchase goods, that sort of thing. So that that's something to, to keep in mind. There's also the, the piece that is really the concern during the proposal process was, hey, why do we have to disclose something within four business days of determining its material? What if we've been told by the FBI not to disclose? How should we think about that? And so there, there is a change to the proposal where essentially the SEC has baked in this process where um, you can get a series of extensions um, on those actual disclosure requirements in the Form AK um, if they notify in writing um, to the U.S. Attorney General, so essentially the DOJ, um, that those immediate disclosures would actually pose a, a significant risk to national security and public safety. Um, and so that's an area as well that, that I think companies were happy to see a lot of the questions about, though, how do you operationalize it? How, is, how are you going to get it to that point uh, of taking it to the Attorney General or, you know, does it get elevated that quickly? How does it get elevated? How do you think even think about that? Well, those are my my exact questions. So I don't know, Matt, if you can weigh in here, just how that process is going to work. Because as soon as Kyle started talking yeah. about that, I just think from a practical point of view, for, first of all, four days is not a very long time. And are the agencies really going to work that well together? And so what, what can we expect? Yeah, I think first and foremost, the question is, do you have the right relationships with federal law enforcement? That is the FBI, the military counterintelligence organizations, because that's going to be your kind of first stop uh, on that journey towards a potential delay. I think the important thing to, to think about is it will absolutely be a rare occasion when that would be exercised. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be an extraordinarily rare occasion. But the process is to contact federal law enforcement, have those conversations, because most companies are not going to be able to make a determination if they would have that impact on the disclosure. And that's what we're talking about, would have an impact on national security Mm -hmm. or public safety. So having the relationships, knowing how you would make that contact, who would make that contact, what would the questions you would ask and the information you would provide, um, because you don't want to have to figure that out during the time of the actual incident. But you know, as Kyle mentioned before, the process of determined materiality can take some time. So if you have an early call to the FBI, for example, you work through that materiality determination and you ultimately believe that you need to make a material disclosure um, and you believe that its impact would need to be delayed, then that's the that gives the FBI or others the, the time to work through the interagency process to get that approval. Uh, yeah, so while I'm listening to you, what's running through my mind is, okay, so I'm a large multinational. I probably have my own security force. I do have these relationships and otherwise. But if I'm a smaller company, I'm, I may not even have the resources to start building those relationships now. So, you know, again, if I'm a smaller company listening, and perhaps you say, well, if you're maybe then it wouldn't have these potential risks, but you don't necessarily know. So what do you recommend in a case like that? Yeah, you know, the FBI has 56 field offices in the domestic U.S., uh, and they have smaller resident agencies throughout the country. There is no company too small to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm, I'm this company, I'm here, 
I'd like to establish contact should we ever need to, to make a contact with you regarding an incident. And so I think it's not unrealistic to think even a small company can pick up the phone, call the FBI, introduce themselves so that you at least know who, who you're going to call during the time of actual incident. You never want to be in a situation where you're exchanging business cards in the middle of the crisis. And so I think it's a good investment of time and effort to, to make that phone call today. Wow. Well, that's fantastic advice. Although now I wonder if these field offices are going to be inundated <laughs> with, with calls. That, that's been our you know reaction to this as well as I think companies are, are obviously, it'll, they're not all equal. And so as we've thought up and to have these conversations, I mean, it's, it, it complicates a lot, right? Because- not only are you, you know, more challenged when you're a smaller company and don't have the, the resources, but a smaller company also is likely to escalate stuff. So it's more challenging mm-hmm. there as well. Like more is escalated because you need to consider more. You need to, cons- you know, you need to have your, let's say, disclosure review committee to consider the impacts, the materiality. And so, but I think the key point that, that Matt was describing is you got to make sure that you reach out and you have those contacts today because it's critical. You can't wait. Um, and I think it's relatively easy to do, as, as you pointed out. Um, I'd say that today, from my conversations with companies, and I don't know, Matt, what your perspective is, but I've not, it, it doesn't see, it seems that very large companies have those contacts and are, are have regular touch points. I'm not so sure we get that with maybe some of the, you know, mid-sized companies mm-hmm. and even the smaller companies. No, I think that's fair, but, but there's no reason why they shouldn't make those contacts. And certainly if they've had a cyber incident, they, they want to make that call then for sure. Yeah. But we see even even in that case, I think the FBI has had some cases where um, they've been able to notify victims uh, as a result of an incident. Basically, they were they had certain visibility that allowed them to notify the victim, provide, in this case, ransomware, a key and decryptor so they wouldn't have to pay a ransom. The case I'm thinking about, only about 20% of the, the individual companies called the FBI. The FBI mm-hmm. called the other 80%. So I think we're still probably only about 20% of companies actually contact, even when they have an incident. Well, and it's interesting because ransomware has come up a few times here. And the first thing that came to mind, Kyle, when you mentioned it to me, is you know that's something that even you read about in the press. And so I would presume, but maybe this isn't correct, that if it's risen to the level that the press is reporting on it, you probably are automatically triggered that you better be reporting it. It's a tough to say um, that you would trigger that reporting requirement. Um, there's a lot of stuff that gets leaked in the mm-hmm. press. Um, I can tell you that just being a former SEC staffer, if we saw something leaked to the press, we certainly would pay attention to it. Um, you know, in the past, we would directly reach out to those companies or the company that was impacted to, you know, have a conversation. Hey, have you thought about materiality? Have you thought about some of these things? Should you report the incident? Have the dialogue? I imagine the staff is still doing that, um, but I don't think that it's like a want. Yes, you must disclose. Um, again, though, I think it's it. It certainly is going to. Ha- bring more rigor probably in the process. Mm-hmm. I think these new rules are going to bring more rigor no matter what, right? Because you have to walk through a process, you're implementing controls to figure out how to handle these, how to escalate incidents, how to think about materiality. And so all of those challenges, that's going to all be laid out. It's going to be documented by companies. I think companies' best interest to document contem- contemporaneously um, and then continue that documentation as well. So, yeah, I- I'm not sure it's like a, a one-size-fits-all. And, and Matt, you, I know you have a perspective on this as yeah, well. Yeah, certainly it would trigger escalation for a determination around materiality because you've had an incident where you've, you know, you've actually had the breach and you've had some type of destructive uh, event. And so I think it's, 
It does not mean, though, that it's necessarily material. Uh, could, the impact could be substantially different from one case to another, but it, you definitely want to have that conversation. I think the thing around ransomware today is companies are, you know, today probably less concerned about the reputational damage of being the victim of a ransomware incident than they were a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But they are very concerned about how they handle the ransomware attack. So less about the victim, more about how they handle it. And one way they're handling it is being much more transparent. So you see the disclosure publicly of what may or may not end up being a material incident. Oh, that's an interesting point. And I guess the other thing, again, Kyle, when you were talking about things being leaked and otherwise, I do think there is a difference between something in the press versus your reporting to the SEC, the level of information and otherwise. So uh, your your response that you have to have some rigor and, and do this evaluation makes sense. I do want to get to big picture what you should do. But before we do that, Kyle, can you just re-explain this process about the Attorney General now that we had that conversation because it wasn't completely clear to me the sort of sequencing of events. So, and maybe we can just talk about a typical incident. What sequencing? I would ask Matt that question. Okay. So yeah, Matt, so can you kind of walk through what we would say is I'll call ideal sequencing and then maybe what we may see happen in, in less than ideal circumstance. Yeah. I think, you know, ideally you have that first contact with the FBI or, sorry, I'm going to rewind you. Can we rewind all the way to the fact to when the incident happens? So incident happens and let's assume the company, someone in the company identifies it. What should, what should happen next? And then where does it go outside the company? Yeah. Look, I, I think, you know, I mentioned where I previously worked, yeah. so I do have a bias, but I think, you know, we'll use a ransomware example. We have yeah. a ransomware incident. I'm going to contact, if I'm that company, the FBI immediately, because my first question to the FBI is, do you have a key and decryptor to this particular incident? Because it fundamentally changes my discussion around paying a ransom or not. And so that's the initial contact with law enforcement. Now, as you work through that process to both resolve the incident and simultaneously evaluate materiality, that engagement with law enforcement continues. The questions can be asked of law enforcement. Do you think this poses a you know, significant uh, risk to public safety or national mm-hmm. security, or the government may tell the company that, and those discussions take place. If that were to be the case, and again, it is an extraordinarily rare occasion where it would be, because what we're talking about is the disclosure of the incident. It's the disclosure that causes the risk or, or impact, not the mm. underlying incident. It already took place. And so you know, that process would work its way up through the Department of Justice, the FBI is part of the Department of Justice, up to the Attorney General, who would then opine to the SEC on uh, the, the need to delay that disclosure. I see. And we've mentioned key encryptor, if I'm getting that right, a couple of times. Can, just for our listeners who may not be aware, what is that? Yeah. So if, if you're the subject of a ransomware attack that has encrypted your system, it's the ability to decrypt your systems. And so it's the key and the, the uh, software that is going to turn around and unlock your systems. That is what these ransomware actors promise to give you uh, should you pay the ransom. So, so the key piece here, which I think is is certainly interesting is not every incident is created equal. And so he highlighted ransomware in those situations, you know, the, the advice is reach out to law enforcement. 
you may not have that same approach, right? If, yeah, we had some laptops that were access, you know, mm-hmm. but you're looking and evaluating that. And so, so you may look and say, we're going to escalate this to our, you know, let's say management team for them to think about. And then of course, the disclosure review committee to think about as, as it relates to, is this material, should it be disclosed? But in this case where it's ransomware, I, I think, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, you probably almost always should, good practice as a former FBI guy, best practice would be to contact law enforcement immediately, meaning the, the CISO would do that without then having to get approval from 50 other people before that happens? Or like what typically happens there? Because I'm just thinking of if I'm at a company, great, I know how to get it to FBI, but how should I escalate it? Should I contact them at that point in time? You know, or is it just subject to the policies that are in place? Like escalation within the organization before it goes to uh, the FBI. Yeah, the answer to that question is going to be baked into the individual company's incident response plan about right. who has the authority to make that call. Will they make that call? What questions they would ask? Sometimes that's done internally. Sometimes that's done through outside counsel. We used to have a major incident. You've brought in outside counsel. So there, there are a number of different ways to get there. Um, but my advice, again, with the bias that I have from where I used to work is make that contact uh, early because nothing stops you from paying a ransom if you make a business decision to pay it. Nothing stops you from doing whatever you need to do in terms of response. But additional resources come your way when you contact federal law enforcement. All right. Very helpful. So, Matt, we've jumped around a little bit here, but just taking a step back, when you're talking to companies about preparing for the rule, what are sort of the top five or however many things that you recommend uh, that they address right away? Yeah. You know, if you think of the way Kyle described the the final rule in three buckets of disclosure, the first around material incident disclosure, Mm -hmm. second around risk management, cybersecurity uh, strategy, processes and the third round governance and board. I think most of the conversations are in that first bucket around the material incident disclosure. And I think it starts with the escalation process around uh, the information. You've had an incident. Um, Many companies don't escalate every incident to what I'll call the disclosure committee, those making the dispositive call around materiality. And so if you haven't baked materiality considerations and impact into that escalation, you could have escalations without regard, uh, and you're basically making materiality calls by deciding what to escalate. So that's the first area of conversation with clients. The second area is around those related incidents. Uh, Those are incidents that are immaterial individually, but when aggregated, because they're related, because you remember the shift, as Kyle described, from the proposed rule we talked about aggregate incidents to the final rule where we talk about related incidents. Do you have the right ability to attribute that activity uh, to particular actors and make that correlation between the incidents? The next thing is around, as we already discussed, do you have the right relationships with federal law enforcement? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next piece is once you get that incident up to the disclosure committee, do you have the right process documentation? Does that process result in the evidencing of contemporaneous records uh, that allow you to kind of, for lack of a better term, show your math later on. And then lastly, around that bucket is once you've made that dispositive determination around materiality, can you get it out the door and approved within that four time, four day time period? And so that entire stack um, is being exercised. Uh, even companies that say, hey, we, we have all those things you just described and we're very comfortable. They're still 
exercising the escalation process. They're exercising the determination process and then ultimately exercising the disclosure and ability to get that out of the door. So, so Matt, that this probably another good follow-up question for you. you. You were talking about the immaterial cybersecurity incidents, and that's a obviously a shift in the final rule where previously it was proposed it would be included in, let's say, a 10K or a 10Q. Now the, the requirement is if you have, a, you know, let's say multiple cyber incidents, you determine they're not material, you then would need to look to see if they're related and bucket them and evaluate disclosure. A lot of the questions I've been getting have been surrounding, well, what period of time do I look at to think about aggregation? Do I look at the last 12 months? Do I look at the last three years? Like, what is the guidance? And Because the SEC has not said in, in, the, in the final rule what period of time to assess for that aggregation process. Yeah, and that's the problem. There isn't a defined period, and it's an 8K, and so it's related to the incident as opposed to the 10K annual disclosures. And so it, it really opens up that aperture. If you think about um, what kind of incidents would be related? It really, there are two things that bound incidents together. The first is the vulnerability. So you could have a flaw in a particular software being exploited by numerous bad actors out there. That is, however many incidents you had on that particular vulnerability by whoever, all need to be bound together. The other way is to bound up related incidents is the actor. So who is the threat actor conducting the activity? I think both of those things go to the ability to attribute the activity and then be able to track that activity over time. So hypothetically had an incident that uh, an actor, actor A came into your systems in September. Uh, they took a look at your systems. You got them out. There was a material assessment that it was immaterial. Same actor came back in October. Now you need to escalate both of those up together so that they're considered an aggregate. Come the following March, same actor came back in, yet another technique, but same actor, and, and now you need to put all three of those together. So there is no time bounding. I think as a practical matter, um, vulnerabilities have a shelf, shelf life. They can only be exploited so long as you haven't patched your systems and, and mitigated the vulnerability. Criminal actors come and go over time. It's the national security actors that consistently operate over the years where that becomes a very complicated issue. And should be considered in your determination around materiality. And I guess, Kyle, maybe to you, materiality, how how are we thinking about materiality here? Because if I think about from a financial statement point of view, it, it's a little, it's a little hard easier, to connect. Well, right? sort of. But it's, how do you connect this? I mean, well, you're saying so you are looking at the actual financial impact yeah. of the of what occurred, but yeah, I mean, I, I look, I think, I think that's the, the, the difficulty or the challenge, right. Is that w there is guidance on, you know, how the sec and how, you know, the, the, the securities laws view materiality, right. So you have yes. these staff accounting bulletins, 99 and 108 that really walks through how to think about material when you materiality, when you think about the financial statement, so mm -hmm. you've identified an error, how do I figure out whether I need to correct that error and how, how am I supposed to correct that error if in fact it's, it's so significant. So there, there is guidance there, but that's the financial impacts. So it's really the non-financial impacts or the indirect impacts, right? So you're thinking about these qualitative factors, like, is it impacting your reputation? We, should, mm -hmm. we mentioned that a couple of times. Is it impacting your customer relationships, vendor relationships? You know, are you going to get sued? Like, is it regulatory compliance issues? Like, so there's a lot really to unpack there. And so I think, 
that is going to be the biggest challenge for companies is, you know, if disclosure of an incident, and if, if, if you're saying, hey, our stock price would be impacted if we disclose that incident, which a lot of people will say they're asking that question. Well, gosh, I think that if every company it would be automatic, right? Yeah. So, so those are some of the challenges I think that companies are have to deal with here. Um, the other piece, though, is, as I think about it, is, you know, is companies are thinking about developing let's some materiality framework, they need to be very thoughtful about what they actually put out, right? What they actually document. Um, you want to be very open-ended. You want to be able to, you know, th- that the company can apply judgment. So you do want to have some, some process in place, but you want open-ended questions. Did it impact this? Did this system uh, impact, you know, let's say our financial statements or, or did this event impact, you know, our, a customer or all of our customers, right? And so all of those factors need to be considered. The other piece to, to really not ignore is the, the future impact. So you think about a discounted cash flow model that may be utilized for a number of you know things in the financial mm-hmm. statements, specifically goodwill is, is a good example. Um, well, do you change your discounted cash flow models because of that? And does that then result or trigger impairment because you don't have the same revenue growth rate assumptions? Or you're, you know, you're looking at the terminal value of the, the business. Does it not have, you know, is it as high as you've kind of, think it think it is and have you thought about the future expenses for compliance or lawsuits things like that have you built that into your model so a lot to think about kind of outside of the financials and then of course the ongoing impacts to think about as well all right well definitely a lot to think about and i i think a key here that we've alluded to but i think we need to hit head on head on it's a number of parties from the company that should be involved. So Matt, again, sort of from a best practice point of view, who do you see being involved in the, I'll call it the plan uh, and the overall governance? Yeah, I think at a minimum, you're looking at uh, three organizations that need to be at the table and you'll bring others as well, but it's it's gonna be the CFO comptroller organization. It's gonna be the general counsel and the CISO CIO organization. The three of them need to come to the table uh, and apply the appropriate inputs to ultimately make that materiality determination. All right. Well, definitely very important. So gentlemen, so much here. And I think we could probably talk about this for the whole day, which sounds like it's what the two of you have been <laughs> doing. But if you were going to just leave some sort of final thoughts with our audience, what are sort of the sort of key takeaways from your own perspective? Maybe Matt, you first and then Kyle, if you can add on. Sure. For me, it is you know, taking a look and doing that gap assessment today. Are you prepared come December to be able to disclose on those three buckets of disclosure? And then secondly, have you tested that? So if you think, for example, on that first bucket that I described, you're doing all those things well today, I would encourage you to do an exercise, make sure you're you're able to do that because what you don't want to do is have that be something that you're going to determine during the middle of a crisis. You want that to take place well before the crisis. Yeah, I think my key takeaway from you is to contact your local FBI office and build a relationship with them. So I, I would, I was going to say that. I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it certainly is a, a good point. I think. I think what I would say is, um, it's really important to have everyone on the same page. And I think once you kind of the cross functional team that's working on this, um, but but also the importance of sharing this information with other parties that that you really are should be sharing it with. So I'm thinking about the, the audit committee or whoever's responsible mm-hmm. for oversight 
and doing that in real time. And I think the other piece is the auditor, right? And so, so they understand the impacts, right? This is the very core of the securities laws when you think about the safeguarding of assets concept in the federal securities laws. And that's an area where I think a lot of people like kind of lose sight. The other piece I'd add is in that finance function, the importance of the internal auditor, the internal audit function, taking us, you know, looking at it uh, from kind of this independent perspective of saying, hey, are, are these good processes and these controls are in place? Can we actually test that? Can we look at that mm-hmm. if this is actually in place and this and we have an incident that occurs? Are, are, are we, in fact, able to comply with that? And then ongoing assessments of that from the internal audit function. Well, and it sounds like I just adding to what you said, I think making sure that you have this materiality framework and that the parties have all bought in into how you're thinking about things from materiality is also going to be critical. Buy in. That that's a great point. We actually had that conversation yesterday. Is what if we don't all agree? Mm-hmm. Who makes the final call? So right. It's a great. Point. Right. Yeah. So who who has the pen, as, yeah. as we might say? Yep. So anyway, gentlemen, such a pleasure to have you on. A lot to think about here. Uh, so we may have to do some follow up, but definitely thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.